Hi, I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Look, the world loves us when we are good, better, best. But this is a podcast for when you want to stop feeling guilty that you're not living your best life now. We're not always living the plotline of The Bachelorette. I used to have my own delusion of living my best life now. I'm a Duke professor, wine and cheese enthusiast, wife and mom, Instagram gold. Then I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. That was four years ago, and I'm still here. And now I get it. Life is a chronic condition. The self-help and wellness industry will try to tell you that you can always fix your life. Eat this and you won't get sick. Lose this weight and you'll never be lonely. Believe with your whole heart and God will provide. Keep this attitude and the money is yours. But I'm here to look into your gorgeous eyes and say, hey, there are some things you can fix and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always better. We can find beauty and meaning and truth, but there's no cure to being human. So let's be friends on that journey. Let's be human together. Dear listener, I have a confession, a guilty pleasure, if you will. This Christmas, the Hallmark Channel will release 23 new movies in its Countdown to Christmas series, and I will watch every single one. Unashamedly. Yes, I even have the app. Will the blonde businesswoman put work aside for once to see that the lumberjack hung from her hometown is madly in love with her? Will someone be hospitalized by being struck by a Christmas tree and then fall in love with his assailant? I will watch them alone, I will watch them with my dad. I will watch them with my mom. My son knows that two people will share a very chaste kiss at the end and he will hide under the coffee table. I grew up with a dad who's the world expert historian of Christmas. So like he wrote the biography of Santa Claus, for example. Their house is 90% Christmas decorations and 10% copies of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Of course, I became a historian and an expert in the idea that good things happen to good people, which is also what a Hallmark Christmas movie is. 90 minutes of something good happening to two people in Colorado or Maine, but never Texas. For some reason, never, ever Texas. But there is something so compelling about these tidy storylines. They are predictable and trustworthy. And frankly, they are an escape for many of us living with pain, grappling with estranged families reckoning with lives that haven't always turned out the way we hoped they would. Today, I am speaking with an actress and a bleeding heart who shares my love for Christmas movies, and it isn't just because she has starred in many of them. Nikki DeLoach is an actress, producer, and advocate. She lived my childhood dream as part of the Mickey Mouse Club, alongside Ryan Gosling, Britney Spears, and Justin Timberlake. You may recognize her from television shows like Awkward, and most recently in movies like Truly Madly Sweetly, A Dream of Christmas, and please watch the one that just came out, Cranberry Christmas, where she reveals her addiction to frozen hot chocolate. She co-founded a blog community for women called What We Are, and she is a tireless champion of the Alzheimer's Association in honor of her father. 
She and her husband, Ryan, live in California with their two sons, Hudson and Bennett. Nikki, I have been looking forward to this forever. I feel like I'm in a dream (laughs) because I love you so much. And also just listening to that, because I have your book and I also have it on tape. So I have listened to your voice for such a long time. I just I can't believe that I'm I'm talking to you. It like makes me emotional because <laughs> you're so wonderful. Oh, hon. Okay, well, I feel that way about you. And now I get to talk to you, not just... <laughs> I feel it will. The fact that um, I will super fan this entire conversation. I do apologize since it is uh, the Christmas season. I was wondering if we could start backwards in your life from now backwards and if we could start with Hallmark Christmas. Do you mind? I, I think there's no better place to start than Hallmark. <laughs> They're kind of like a a genre. Like so if you see one, you begin to understand the rules. So I wondered if we could play a quick game and give people a sense of what we're talking about. Okay, perfect. <laughs> okay, super. Okay. So for this game, I'm gonna ask you about a couple movies that you are not starring in because obviously you know those other ones inside out, and that would be cheating. Okay. Every Christmas movie, leading lady has a dream. So, for instance, in the movie I saw last night, Christmas Wishes and Mistletoe Kisses, Abby is a 30-something single mom who works at an old folks' home called Shady Grove, where she loves the kindly and wise-cracking residents. But, Nikki, her real dream is to be what? Does she want to be A, an aspiring real estate agent, B, an aspiring Christmas tree selector for a major television network? These are all true professions in Christmas Hallmark movies. C, would you like to be an aspiring seasonal hat shop owner? D, an aspiring Christmas interior decorator? Or E, an aspiring Christmas pageant director? Wow. (laughs) Can I say all of the above? Those have all been (laughs) plot points. (laughs) Christmas pageant director? Unfortunately, her impossible dream is to be an interior decorator. Oh. Wow. That, by the way, the Christmas tree director for a network. She needs to go in that one to rural Maine to select the perfect Christmas tree. Oh, that's, that's, I think her nickname is Miss Christmas and she has to go find the perfect tree and she knows that tree will speak to the nation. I'm a little upset that I didn't get to do that (laughs) I I think I'm going to call Hallmark and say next time. (laughs) Actually, I think that one was starring. I think that might have been the Dean Kane one. I think I might be oh, right about that. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love a good Dean Kane. <laughs> There's never enough Dean Kane. This one in Christmas Wishes and Mistletoe Kisses. There's always a, a gala or a Christmas festival. And this one, she needs to deck the halls of a nearby undecorated mansion owned by a handsome millionaire who may or may not have lost the Christmas spirit. <laughs> And played by Dean Kane. This one was played <laughs> by the legally blonde guy whose name I forget. <laughs> oh, yes. But it should be played by Dean Kane. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Also, these movies are very romantic. So I thought maybe we could name things that people may not understand are both Christmassy and very romantic. Things like finding Christmas ornaments in an attic. Romantic romantic especially if it has a story attached to it you're right there's always a story associated with like the ornament one about like um what are those like shaky shake uh where the snow comes down like snow globes yes the snow globes that i've had one with a snow globe <laughs> I it was called from christmas reunited and 
So this was an idea I'd taken to Hallmark because I wanted to tell the story. You know, there's a lot of people that are also divorced. And so I wanted to tell a storyline of a mother and father who had gone through a divorce, a family who had gone through that, and they were coming together to spend one last Christmas together. I really had to fight for this story, but there was a snow globe involved in it. And in the snow globe, like an absolute replica of the house, of my grandmother's house inside of it, that I was that I was given as a gift for my love interest in the movie. But by the way, trying to get the snow globe made was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> snow globe. And we were supposed to shoot the scene that day and, and, and props comes up to give it to me. And I'm like, this looks nothing like the house. It didn't even have a house in it. It was, we couldn't even shoot it. And so then we ended up having to shoot the insert of the snow globe on the last day of production because we finally got the right snow globe. <laughs> the so there's, yeah, there's a lot of props involved. There's always like a lot of maybe kind of accidental violence around a Christmas tree. Like like you you can fall off one or you can be injured by one like you you're a whole, you had amnesia i think falling off a christmas tree i did so we 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 this was one of my favorite movies i've actually done for hallmark i fall off a christmas tree and i wake up in essentially this world that i thought i wanted i was a very successful business person i had clothes i had the money i was in power i had the hair and and I, what I realized along the way is I didn't I didn't want that life I wanted my life and I I loved the message of that movie so much that I think we all think that we want what we don't have and just to be able to reflect back on on the incredible things that we do have in our life I remember crying so hard in the all is lost moment of that movie and in Hallmark they don't like you to cry too much. <laughs> Oh, sweetie. Yeah. And I am a big crier. Like, I don't, if you know me, you know, like, I will cry anywhere. I will cry at the dry, I will cry everywhere. And I ugly cry like Claire Danes in Homeland. (laughs) So it's like the moment where, you know, I can't take my wish back and my husband moved on with another woman and I'm standing outside amongst these Christmas trees in the snow and I have to say goodbye to him because I'm not going to get him back and I am sobbing and the director comes up and he's like sweetie um, you're you're doing great it's beautiful it's really beautiful work I can't I can't use any of this (laughs) and I'm like why why Mascara? He's like, it's the mascara. It's the face. It's the. It's just the all of it. Like, <laughs> Nikki, that's so great. I just need one single solitaire to just like delicately, <laughs> run down one of your eyes, preferably the left one, because that's where camera is. And you know what, Kate? I did it. I did single solitaire here. here. But I will never forget. He's like, I can't use any of this. And it was my first lesson in like learning how to cry on camera for homework while still making it authentic. Absolutely. Yeah. The, re- the real, but not too real. I totally get it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we- <laughs> it's funny. You know, it's, 
it's it's we all have to give up on like the version of the life we thought we'd have. And I I think that's and I, I think maybe people who might see your life on the outside might imagine like we might imagine that that even the actors are living their own hallmark plot line. But life is really never as neat as as we hope it will be. And learning more about your story, we talk a lot about kind of befores and afters in, in these conversations. And I was so struck that your before and after is is also a story of of you being a mom and that uh after the birth of your first child, you you experience something that's so common, but it's not often talked about, which is uh, postpartum depression. I was so unaware of postpartum depression that I didn't even realize I was in it till I got, till I was, became suicidal. Oh, I went back to work about four months after having Hudson. He had colic, which actually it just ended up being that my milk wasn't producing enough fat. So he was all the time. It was, you know, the hormones, all of that. And I kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And then I went back to work. I was filming. I was on a show called Awkward at the time. And um, I thought, well, maybe this is just what it's like for a mom and for a working mom. And maybe this is just what it, what it feels like. Then I started slipping deeper into it. The mania started, the suicidal tendency started, all of that started to happen. And I woke up to the fact that I was really not okay. And I was at my best friend's house, Jen Didi, who I started what we are with. And I just broke down in her kitchen crying. And I was like, I'm not okay. Something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And she held me and she was like, I know I've been so worried about you. And she's like, did you ever think that it might be postpartum depression? And honestly, until she said it, because nobody ever talks about it, I didn't even think about it. So here I was inside of this body and this brain that I felt like was betraying me so deeply. And I, and I was so angry because I just worked so hard. I just carried this baby for 10 months. I worked so hard to push it out. And all I want to do is just feel the love and the glory and the all I, all I want to do. And I couldn't touch upon it. And I just thought I was going to die. And that was the only way out. And luckily, um, I got help a person being from the South and being told every day, don't put your dirty laundry on the street. Don't, you know, don't tell the neighbors. You don't want anybody to see you sweat. Just like smile and act like everything is okay. I, it was like, I took a baseball bat to this glass house of perfection that had built around me. And I was like, bam, no more. Because so many women are going through this and I want them to know you are not alone and you are not crazy and you should not carry the shame of this. Oh, yeah. So much of what we end up facing in our lives are, 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 are impossible to avoid because they are, they are part of the cost of love. And, and you've talked, I mean, really beautifully about how parenthood has been has ushered you into this great and terrible 
and wonderful roller coaster of being both desperately in love and and being helpless to actually solve most of the pain that shapes our kids' lives. If if you don't mind taking me back to a a story that I'm sure is is really difficult. During what should have been a totally routine ultrasound with your second child, you discovered that your new little baby was already fighting for his life. I couldn't wait to see him. And the technician was taking a really long time in a certain area. And I knew something was going wrong. And she exited the room and she said, okay, I'll bring the doctor in. And I literally just like stood up from the, from the, you know, the little bed, the hospital or the bed that you lay on sort of pacing the room. And the doctor came in and told us that he didn't just have one congenital heart defect. He had three. And then we learned later that he ended up having a fourth one. He had what's called transposition of the great arteries where <sighs> both of the main arteries that go into the two chambers of the heart, they were in the wrong chambers. His aorta was virtually closed and he, and he had a hole in his heart, a VIP. And the specific unique ways in which his heart was messed up made the surgery and our you know journey with this even more difficult. We met with so many different doctors who didn't have a lot of you know hope for us until we ended up meeting with Dr. Von Starnes at Children's Hospital of LA. And it's it's beyond it's beyond just oh my gosh this is going to be hard. It is I don't like wait are you telling me that like my like my son may not live? Like there's a really really large chance a large percentage that he like even if he survives birth, that there's really only like one or two surgeons in the whole entire world that could possibly do this surgery. Oh, and then you'd have to wait until until you knew. I mean, that much anticipation must have been completely exhausting and surreal. It was so surreal, as you know, as you know, like it's so surreal. The unknown. Being inside of that, I've never, it's, I've never been more present in my life. It's crazy how present you get because you actually cannot think even five minutes ahead. You can't think five minutes behind. No. You, because it's so big and it's so heavy and the pain and the, um, what's at stake so large that all you can do, it takes everything you have just to continue breathing in the place in which you are sitting. Yeah. And then to live there, I, I, I know, I know the pandemic was like an introduction to that feeling for some people where they have to live on the edge of the cliff. But when you realize like the, the thing in front of you is impossible. <laughs> I, I just, that must've been, um, I mean, you, you, you had so many difficult choices then to make so quickly. It sounds like there were sort of dangerous surgeries then that would have to be faced down existentially in, in rapid succession. 
And my mentor told me at the, like she told me in the beginning as she held my hand and she said, this is going to be the hardest thing that you will ever do. But if you allow it to break you open, if you can pry yourself open and experience the magic and experience the miracles, because there will be many Imagine who are you who you will become on the other side of this. Imagine what your family is going to become, the people you will step into. That's what I just kept trying to do. Just like when I would want to panic or run or hide, I would just pry myself <laughs> and be like, all right, so I'm gonna stand still inside of this thing. Yeah, that's right. And let my and let my heart be able to handle the bandwidth of all that this is going to bring in. Yeah, that's such a good prayer too. Cuz like the temptation is to be like, "No, I'm going to reduce it to the level of reality that like I can manage." Cuz that for 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 almost all of us, almost all of the time, it's it's just it's so overwhelming that it's it's hard to take in most of it. So I imagine just like staying there in that in that like ongoing medical journey with him was really was like a a deliberate act of of constantly keeping yourself open oh man so much so i mean in each surgery because there have been three of them in each surgery there are there's the moment before there's the moment you say goodbye there's the waiting and then there's the return and the healing each moment of that, you have to just keep prying yourself open and breathing into your body and trusting and trusting that you are going to be able to be carried, that you are going to help me to stand next to his bedside when he was second surgery, when he was thrashing for two days in pain. Oh. It helped me to be able to, you know, sit in that waiting room for each one of us and for each one of them and just keep breathing into my feet because my heart, I had to find a place in my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. It was Jason Green. It was, um, yeah, he's a beautiful author. He wrote this gorgeous book about the the death of his daughter. His daughter had been killed by a, a a brick that just like fell off a building when she was just a toddler. And, oh my God. and he talked about like what he learned from fear and, um, and that so much of that was that he could learn that it was also part, partly a language of, of love that it, it taught him what he, what he was scared that he couldn't live without what his deepest hopes might be. Like what happens in the space between when your miracle comes true and when it doesn't and like what might still be there. So I, I think you are absolutely right. Cause sometimes we get our, man, sometimes we, we are surprised by what turns out. Sometimes we're just, I love that you said carried. Sometimes we are just like carried the rest of the way by, by God's love and, 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 and by each other. It's so true. He's so right. I call her my sister wife, Lucy, but she was really someone who came into my life for three years to help me with Bennett. The first three years of Benny's life, 
He went through all three heart surgeries with us. And we would do this motto where like on the days where it was really hard, we would be like, everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. Everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. Everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. Everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. And we would just say it until we were either like laughing or crying or dancing or, and we would just say it around the house together, you know? And so now oh. it's a thing where it's everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. Everybody, okay? Everyone? Everybody's okay. That's <laughs> so good. It's like little engine that could. And then eventually you're just like, okay, we're there. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> I love that so much. I'm totally going to do that. That's genius. That same year, your 62-year-old dad was diagnosed with Pick's disease, a rare form of dementia. People normally imagine that dementia causes the people we love to be forgetful or simply to fade, but they don't just fade. You noticed huge changes. Within six months, he'd forgotten your kids' names. He'd forgotten that he was your basketball coach. That must have been so painful. Yeah, it is. It's a very rare and aggressive form of dementia. And um, so what, so there, you know, there's four different types of dementia. There's regular Alzheimer's that most people fall, fall under that umbrella. There's vascular dementia, there's Lewy body. And then there's the fourth category is frontal temporal dementia, which are usually very rare and aggressive forms of dementia. And my dad falls into that category and he was diagnosed with Pick's disease. And I found out about my dad and Bennett's condition in the same week. Yeah. In the same week, I found out that I was definitely losing my dad and there was nothing we could do about that. And I could potentially also lose my son. The thing I will have to say that, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my love around, that I'm still trying to wrap my understanding and my heart around. And this is the thing that in your book, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. I can't for the life of me, Kate, wrap my understanding around a scenario where you know, because I have to be on the ground with my baby and it's one surgery after another, after another. And also after the first one, he came home on oxygen and he was on oxygen for a very long time. And there was all of that, that I I couldn't get home to my dad. I couldn't actually get to him. And Ben's immune system was so compromised. He couldn't travel. We finally got to a place with Bennett where we have him not a knock on wood and everything, please, Lord Jesus, to where his heart was stable. We got two good echocardiograms in a row. Oh, congrats. That's wonderful. I was planning, and this was at the top of the year. I said, okay, now that Bennett is in a good place, I am going to start going home every six weeks and I'm going to spend a week in Georgia with my dad. And then COVID happens. Oh, sweetie. And I can't travel again. And that love is so messy because it's such a, it's such a messy illness. Like it's not, it's not a clean grief. No, it is long. It is arduous. 
Even this morning, I was on the phone with the doctors trying to talk to them about what meds they're trying to get him on or get him off and he's not sleeping and all of this stuff is happening. And I am great at advocating now. Yeah, I know how to do it. I know how to do this. I know how to ask the questions. I know how to, you know, I, I, I know how to stand in that room. I know how to like, I, I know how to do this. And all I want to do is get to him and I can't get to him. And so yeah. I just, uh, I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying so hard just to go back to the place of like, just open just open, just keep opening because this is what's happening and this is the reality of what's happening. And I don't have to like it. I I, I don't have to even accept it right now. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, I know. And our hearts, like they skip forward because, because of just like a love is an arrow, right? And it just like goes right to them. And then we're constantly skipping forward. Yeah, don't skip to the end. Oh. <laughs> saying to my mom like this morning when she called me just crying and I said mom we cannot think about what's going to happen next week we cannot think about what's going to happen in three weeks or a month or two months right now today this is what we're dealing with and this is where we're at and then we're going to go to bed tonight and tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to see what we have on our plates tomorrow and then we're going to tackle that Okay. That's so wise. It's the only thing that we can do. I know. I'm always stuck on that because like the part of me that always wants to save myself future pain is always trying to anticipate the terrible thing and fold it into what I know now. And I'm like, oh, no, no, that's realism. That's realism, Kate. You're doing hard work. Good for you. 2 a.m., Kate. Just working hard. Just like, but the truth is because we don't know, just holding, like holding your ground on the, on the like, on the possibility that yes, it might be terrible, but yes, it might also be beautiful. And like, that is a hard place to live. And it sounds like you are like policing the boundaries of it with a lot of ferocity, which I love. You talked about this year and how so many people are now touching upon this place, the unknown and that fear that rolls in. And I think for you and me, Man, does my heart, the compassion, the empathy that I have, because you and I've walked that road and we got a little bit ahead of everyone on that because of what we've been through. Living with chronic uncertainty, it gives, it does give you like a horrible and wonderful skill set that like does really come in handy in a moment like this. My friend Jen says you're very good in a crisis, and I believe that. <laughs> and it's not a skill set that I ever wanted to no, have. No, no. In fact, sometimes I'm like, "Is that a? Is that bad? Is it bad?" But like, it's just what it is. I know. Have I gotten too good at this? Does everyone not need rope and duct tape right now? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Like, how am I okay inside of all of this? I don't know. But like. Well, said that to me, you know, weeks ago, he was like, I'm feeling depressed. How are you okay? And I'm like, listen, <laughs> I already like that sentence. I already like where that sentence is going. Listen, where do you want me to begin? <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the people who, whom we talk about 
like hope and the, and the, and the, and the might be, you know, that place of might be, maybe, uh, where when they're going through something really awful, that's something they do right now is like, is they take out the Christmas lights now, or they, or they pull out the tree early or they, you know, and, (laughs) and I, I mean this in no trite way, like that is part of what, like Hallmark movies and the, and the, the beauty of small joys. Like if you watch a Hallmark movie, like the, there's always like a montage or someone just like bakes something beautiful or shares a memory or like takes the boxes down from the attic. And like, that is, that is like a, the discipline of, of, of memory. And then of like, just reveling in what what might be if we make like a tiny little space for a little bit more joy. I got into this whole thing when I was a kid because I watched a movie or I watched a TV show or I read a book or I listened to my grandfather tell a story and I felt connected. I didn't feel alone. I didn't, I, it, there's something about the art and the act of storytelling. It's what you do on this podcast. It is what you see on Hallmark movies that allows us to feel connected to something and we don't feel alone in our lives. And it reminds us, especially in the world of Hallmark, what matters and what's important and it is the little joys and it's little things that bring you happiness and it's the people in your life. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of that. I was like, I want to make people feel like that. (laughs) Well, mission accomplished. And (laughs) you inspired by obviously you and Hallmark. I actually do have an annual gingerbread competition every year. (laughs) I make little, little baby mega churches, tiny little gingerbread mega churches. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. There's always like a little Lego pastor. Usually it's a woman because I like to shake things up. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love it so much. We did, we started doing that as well. I mean, Hallmark has actually inspired me to dig so much deeper. I was like, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> Garlands, deforestation. I love it. I mean, we need gingerbread house competitions. We need, you know, to make all the cookies. We Every every room needs a tree. Every um, room needs a tree. I can't believe I'm so lucky that I, I I get to make movies that make people happy and and I, there's it's just such a gift. It's such a blessing. It really is. I mean, if I have to fall off ten Christmas trees and <laughs> and get a and, and <laughs> I'll do it over and over again. Well. Well, and I will be watching and you, you've called these the, the best, worst years of your life. And I just thank you for sharing the beauty of that with me every Christmas and especially today. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate this conversation. This year, we have lost so much. Jobs, the illusion of health, financial security, people we love. Even hope has been in short supply. We are lonely and tired and afraid. 
and we don't know when it will be over. Even when it's tempting to close up shop, to punt celebration and joy for another time in the distant future when things feel lighter, may this be a permission slip for you to find small pockets of joy and celebrate still. Just like Nikki reminded her mom, tomorrow holds its own problems, so let's make decisions with the information we have today. Maybe it's in a few extra minutes by the fire, or indulging in a silly Christmas movie, or challenging your friends to a gingerbread house building competition on Zoom. No, the holidays will not feel the same, but there is still a little room to celebrate the small joys, to know that right now, there can still be magic. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the generosity of the Lily Endowment. Huge thank you to my team, Jessica Ritchie, Keith Weston, Harriet Putman, and JJ Dickinson. Okay, so it's the season of Advent. It's the season of almost. Almost Christmas. Almost a vaccine. Still the night but we need the light. And I have an idea for how we can spend this together. We need gentle ways right now to find hope and beauty and love. So join me on Instagram and Facebook to find out more. See you there. This is Everything Happens With Me, Kate Bowler.